0: The last time I spoke in L.A., at UCLA, was almost a year ago. And a lot of things have happened, so I thought I would just share some of those highlights. And and especially as I I share from things around the world, this will lead very directly into the theme, Great Among the Nations. Since last autumn, and all these things are uh, things that make people think about faith, in our Bible training school, our AIM, our ministry uh, institute, Our latest series is called Christ and Culture. This summer, we've been tackling subjects like human trafficking. But by the way, these are all subjects that I think are grossly neglected. They're just not dealt with publicly in in sermons and in midweek classes and most of the places where I go. But we need to think about this stuff critically with faith. Uh, Jesus meets Buddha. That's what I'm teaching next week. And Christ and popular entertainment. The sexual revolution. Uh, Jesus and LGBT. We talk about every significant cultural movement. Last week, I taught about Jesus meets Muhammad. Oh, yeah, because we live in a world that is putting certain not-so-subtle pressures on us. If we don't think these things through biblically, we'll just be pushed around. Uh, I teach world religions at the university where I'm adjunct. This year, I was teaching world religions at Lincoln Christian University, especially Islam. Since the last time I was here, we've had four new books. Two are related to the afterlife. One is The Spirit in Spanish and our parenting book in Portuguese. Those have all come out this year. Since the last time I was here, 50 new podcasts, 18 of them just on the Psalms. I've been focusing a lot on the Psalms and worship and a lot of other culturally significant topics. Maybe one of the most fun podcasts I did based on my middle school PowerPoint presentation was on zombies. Because it's an exploration of what death and life are. What is it to be human? How do you make difficult choices when things are a little bit uh, in the gray area, so to speak? Is it wrong to pop him in the head? Is it murder if he's already dead? You could, We see, there are people who would not be caught dead in church or in school on a Sunday morning, but they'd be quite happy Have you just noticed the explosion in zombie-type presentations? It's stunning. It's a wide-open invitation to talk about life. That's just our society saying, please talk to us about important issues. I've got a new website. My old websites are both combined together. My wife's doing a women's corner. Just things to make people think. uh, I get to lead a tour each year. And next month, we're going to Athens and Corinth and Patmos, Laodicea, Uh, Sardis, Miletus, Ephesus, and so forth. They have almost 100 people coming along. So I wanted to focus on some highlights from the International Bible Teaching Ministry since the theme is Great Among the Nations. And I have a real privilege, because I get to go to a lot of these nations, not all of them, but I've been to most of them. This year, about 20 nations. And can I just share with you a few highlights before we get into our passage, into our text, just from uh, uh, things that I've seen. And I begin with some university news. And I'll, I'll begin from this. It was my last visit here in, in, at UCLA with 1,100 people to hear that dialogue uh, with the, uh, the skeptic, president of the Skeptic Society, Michael Shermer. That was a blast. My fourth time meeting Michael. I was at another university. Been, I do university work a lot. Um, I was at the University of, of Latvia in Riga. How many of you know that university? <laughs> How many of you have heard of USC? Okay. <laughs> Latvia? No? Why not? Well, you know, it's, it's part of the old Soviet Union. It's so encouraging to visit the former Soviet Union and see how these republics, now broke, broken away, uh, empowered, trusted, respected, are really going from strength to strength. I said, what do you want me to teach at the university? And this surprised me. Maybe you'll be surprised too. They said, we want you to speak on Mythbusters. So said, Mythbusters, where, they, where they, they take popular ideas and they, 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 like, experiment and blow the thing up and see if it's really true. They said, yes, exactly, because here in Latvia, we all know about the Mythbusters. So I took common myths about Christianity, whether it's the Bible's been twisted or all roads are, lead to God, all religions are the same, or Jesus, you know, is just a regurgitated, previously existing, composite religious figure, and we blow apart those myths and the audience outnumbered us, the seekers outnumbered the believers five to one. And that's very much the kind of ratio I like. I had a chance to speak uh, at a university in a Muslim country. I've, had, I've been able to do this a number of times. And this is the only Muslim country in Europe, it's Albania. And that audience was two-thirds Muslim and one-third ex-Muslim. And I was teaching on Christianity and Islam. And everyone says, well, how did it go? What was the reaction? Well, the reaction was mixed. I mean, overall, very good. I mean, the auditorium was was filled, but we had the full range from hardcore Muslims wearing the veil, standing up for Sharia law, to more thoughtful uh, and, and sometimes quite secular Muslims, those in the middle, those trying to figure out where to go, those with some very good questions. Like, did God really have a son? Now as a Christian, what, what would you say? Do we believe that God had a son? Like God is, boy, it's kind of eternally lonely here. Let me, I need to have a boy. <laughs> Did God have a son? The answer is certainly no. That's not what Christians believe. We don't think that God had a son, right? Jesus is God's son, but it's, that's, see the Muslims, they think about it very differently. It's like God hooked up with a goddess and then they had a boy. <laughs> And we don't believe that. Oh, you've got to know how to answer these questions. Uh, even our local uh, campus ministry in Atlanta, North River, I was, in, I was at the leaders' meeting. I was encouraged that they had a campus. Uh, you've probably never heard of Kennesaw State University, but I know they had the Sunday service last week with 110 visitors. I know the campus guys have 165 studies going on. If you're visiting today, just filter out all this jargon. But what I'm saying is, Outward focus, what we're discussing. I'm going to be speaking at a, another um, a, a campus. A, it's probably the next campus ministry I'll be speaking at is Harvard University. And last time I spoke there was on the Dead Sea Scrolls. This time, it's on a really hot topic. Jesus Christ, Prince of Peace, or God of War. I was scheduled to speak April 19th. But on the 18th, as you may recall, there was a certain bomb, the Marathon Bomber. And there was a shootout that night and so the entire university was locked down. This was especially disappointing because they had canceled the venue to get a bigger one because they were expecting hundreds of visitors and, here, and, and they weren't even allowed out of their dorms. They had hundreds of visitors come and I was speaking on the connection between violence and religion. I'm so pleased this is rescheduled Mid-November, just a few weeks, I'll be back there and I hope we have a massive crowd of students and professors. That's, that's what encourages me so much, the students and they bring their professors. And I'm gonna share about one more very exciting university uh, snippet. I'll do that at the end of this sharing part because it's, uh, it's in a different category entirely. Uh, in some other countries, Norway. So I went to uh, uh, Norway where you know, so many atheists, uh, they want to know what in the world happened with Christianity. Church history shows it got really messed up. I mean, what happened? Uh, what can we learn from this? Well, tell us, especially, what was going on in the first few hundred years. I love doing that. I was invited to Amsterdam. I'm in Holland. The whole weekend was on the afterlife, based on my, my latest book. And I shared, I didn't hold back all, all these ideas from the intermediate state of the dead to hell, eventually coming to an end, the possibility of purgatory, which I reject, but I do consider it as a possibility, uh, out of body and near death experiences, it brings the visitors. I was speaking in Amsterdam, uh, church groups uh, drove in from Germany, from Brussels, you know, from Belgium, people get on the road, they drive a few hours, if they think they're going to learn something, they, they, they come, uh, so encouraging in that way, I've been on the radio quite a few times probably the most interesting interview I've had was on a secular Scottish radio station. Scottish, as in Scotland, as in a radio station based in Aberdeen. Secular, as in they don't believe in God. Well, the week before, they had had a special uh, New Testament scholar speak on heaven. And guess what they asked me to speak on, hell one hour, the whole interview was on hell and what the Bible said. You'd say, well, why would that be of any interest to a secular audience? Don't underestimate a secular audience. Even if they're largely unchurched people and agnostics and atheists, they have plenty of reasons to be concerned with the issues of evil in this world and suffering and justice. And they do want to know what we think. And if we will deliver it the right way in a faithful and balanced way with love and with some sensitivity, they will listen. And this is uh, always surprising and encouraging. I've had a lot of Latin American trips this year, I guess four. Uh, Mexico City, which used to be the safest, who was that? Who who, who made that noise? Was it Castro? Was it Ramirez? Who who was doing that? Okay, Osvaldo, all right which used to be, you know, like the safest city in Mexico, no more. I'm coming out. I'm at the airport. My friend Arturo says, well, that's where the gun battle was last year. See all those holes there? We're we're driving to his home. He said, right there. That's where I pulled over, and the guy had just been assassinated. I looked in there. It was a general killed by the narcs, and we had our midweek there, and just over there, a couple hundred meters away. Well, we're having midweek. There was a gun battle and 14 of the federal police, and the drug guys were killed, It's a scary thing. Even there, this is my first time ever to have a bodyguard. I I thought it was kind of humorous. Last time they tried to do that to me, I just said, no way, and it fell through. But this time, so I've got, got, uh, I meet Arturo, and there's his friend who uh, was a former gang leader. Actually, I'm quite a bit bigger than he is. But he's much more compact. And this is him smiling And this is him angry, he's like exactly the same, but a wonderful brother in Christ. No, no, he didn't have a gun or anything. He was just being vigilant, he was gonna protect me, he would throw himself in front of the bullet if they were trying to get me. But the truth is, I don't need a bodyguard. When I go to Africa, if I go to Asia, if I'm in the Middle East, I just try to blend in and not be conspicuous, so I don't really think (laughs) they would never be able to take me. The spirit of faith in Mexico, despite what's going on with the, it's not just the, it's not just the, the actual murder and kidnapping and drug violence. I think it's the constant tension. It's like it could be at any time. And it's, it's an issue. I mean, you can say, we can, look, we can make fun of someone who, who skips church because he doesn't want to miss a TV show. We probably should make fun of them, gently and then firmly. (laughs) But someone's afraid to come because they're not sure they're gonna come back. This requires a different kind of thoughtfulness. This takes away my excuses and my breath. It takes away my excuses and reminds me how fortunate I am to be where I am and encourages me to pray for these brothers and sisters. I was in Panama Central American Conference. I'll be going to Colombia uh, later this year, twice. I'll be in Ecuador. Uh, I, do, uh, I work with the training of Latin American leaders to help these church leaders to think about faith, to think cri- critically. And most of the Latin American countries, they send their leaders to Miami every year. We have a wonderful time of training. So that's the kind of stuff I do. Uh, with our ministries institute, our Bible training school, I work with them. We work with the program in Boston and we're linked with a lot of the other programs as well. Probably the highlight of my Latin American visits this year was going to Nicaragua. My brother, uh, I, the church I'm part of had a big conference last year, 17,000, 18,000 people in San Antonio. And right after the conference, my brother and his wife moved. They decided to get out of the materialistic world of the United States, which can definitely uh, affect you with the American dream and really twist your values. And I said, we've lived here long enough. So they said, let's move to a less prosperous country where we can help the poor and teach the Bible. And right now, what they really want to do is help people find jobs. Because you can give money and food, but if you give people a job, right? Isn't that what people really want? It's that dignity and that respect. He's become my new hero. You know, moving to Nicaragua. Probably the highlight of that trip, and I was speaking in the church, is when they said that we want you to come into the slums with us, we go frequently, all the children know us, and we read them stories, and and these are children's stories, and it's funny, the children who come, it's not just four and five-year-olds, they come up to age 10, age 12, you may say, what, middle schoolers? Yeah, there's still a lot of middle schoolers who like to hear a story, but go into the slums, and they read. They also go to the burn hospital and, and reach out to the families and the children who've been burned because it's such a hard thing without full medical care. And they told these kids in the slum, it's called uh, uh, United Nations, Naciones Unidas. They said that next week, we're gonna come back with a special guest. Un gringo gigante que piensa leer las historias para ustedes, las cuentas. So they said a giant gringo is gonna come because I am pretty tall. I'm, I'm even like four inches taller than my brother. He's not small. So I came in there, and I'm doing jack of the beanstalk with drama. I mean, in Spanish, of course. I have to do it in Spanish with, with drama. That, that was probably the highlight. What did that have to do with the gospel? How, how were you, like, did the kids get baptized? I mean, did you set up studies? No. But I'm wondering if that maybe was the thing that pleased the Lord the most all the stuff I've done this year, but a definite highlight. We have Atlantic wide Hispanic services. I've been, we flew up Arturo from Mexico. I brought up Nelson Barreto from Miami. I flew up Flavio Uribe from Bogota. So just unity building things. I've been in Canada, in Western Canada, Edmonton. My wife and I taught in Ottawa, Toronto. We have a very special relationship with the Canadians and teach frequently online in their Canadian School of Missions. Africa was my last big trip a few weeks ago and I got back from Liberia. I was there just a few years after the Civil War ended and now they have far to go but it's just a different feel. Not just in the city, the capital Monrovia, but a different feel in the church and you can just tell people are more relaxed, they're more giving, they're more friendly. People are getting baptized every week. So very encouraging in Liberia. It's also fun that the president does come to church now and again. Uh, I was in Nigeria, in Lagos, uh, uh, Abuja. We had a big conference. We presented AIM diplomas for our new graduates in our Bible school. And we certainly believe that all leaders, certainly anyone on staff, needs biblical training. Everyone needs continuing education. And so I presented all the diplomas on the stage in Africa. This is to all the women's ministry leaders, the evangelists, the elders. Everyone goes through the program. We know there can't be exceptions. Everyone needs training. We're going to feed, we're going to really minister to the flock. Everyone needs training. They appreciate that. And I was at this church service in Abuja. That's the capital of Nigeria, right? And guess how long the service was? Some of you already are looking at your watch. You're saying, When's this guy going to start preaching? Look, today, this sharing I'm doing, this is the first half of the sermon, so we're actually well into it, all right? This church service, five hours. Okay, I'm exaggerating. It was like four hours and 50 minutes. Almost five. I, I accepted this as a cultural expression, and it's a very rare event once a year. It was fun. It was fun. I took pictures. I took video. It was a blast, okay? So... Are you complaining? I was talking with one of the brothers in one of the breaks and I said, where where are you from? He said, I'm from Ijeba Ode. I said, you're from what? And it's a town, a city, like an hour plus outside of Lagos, Nigeria, I'd never heard of it. Now, it always encourages me when I meet people from places I've never heard of. Because I like geography because I have brothers and sisters and prospective brothers and sisters in all these places. So i pay attention to geography. That's where people are from, That's people's homes. So we can make fun of it. We can say, what? You know, you can make fun of it. People live there. We had the most incredible talk. I went away, phenomenally encouraged. I also had a chance to go to Cameroon. My pattern is, I'll go to a, a big church like Lagos, you know, 2000, and I always try to go to a place where they don't get outside speakers for whatever reason. And this is a part of French Africa. See, you have Boko Haram, uh, you know, the anti-western movement in Nigeria, the terrorists, the, the Islamists up in the, in the north, particularly the northeast, they cross the border into Cameroon to hide from the, the Nigerian army. Now, in the south part of Cameroon, not the southwest where I was, but the southeast, uh, there's the, the country bordering them is in civil war. So it's a bit of a wild situation. I would not normally go into a civil war situation. I wouldn't do that to my family. I think where I am is, is reasonably safe. But how much it meant to them to have someone come from Atlanta, from another church and speak and teach was so wonderful and I met people there, not just from Douala, they came from Yaoundé. I said you guys came on the bus hours to get here and they came from Limbe and they came from Bamenda. They, came, they converged from multiple cities for just a midweek service. Actually, it was a Monday night service. Why are you here? We want to learn. It was a celebration. It made me want to give. It made me want to teach. It motivated me as a leader, and they even forced me to dance. You know, in Africa, when they dance, it really is pretty good. And they, they're filming it, and they're doing all this kind of stuff, and they walk right out to you, and you have to come with them, and, I had to do it. I'm afraid you may have seen it on YouTube or something. I certainly hope (laughs) not. They made me do it. They made me do it. They forced me. Okay, upcoming, I'll be in Greece, I'll be in Turkey and other places I've not mentioned. But the most exciting things for my heart, the slum kids of Nicaragua. Most exciting uh, for public presentation, probably this chance to go back to Harvard and where I was in June in Brazil. I was at a, a, a church, again it was the pattern, big church, I was in Rio de Janeiro, and then I went to Brasilia, the capital, campus ministry. Campus ministry has about six students. We did a presentation, Christian evidences, why you can believe, why it's reasonable to believe. Who came? So many professors, so many students that we were outnumbered 40 to one. Now that is sweet. You look in the audience and oh, you know him and her, and maybe that guy, and everyone else is a guest or a visiting professor. The talks were wonderful. Many of you are students today. Are, do you get intimidated? Would you invite your professor to an event? I always, In campus ministry, I always encourage the students, reach out to your professors. And there was a moment, not that long ago, when I used to keep track of the professors who are members of our church. And worldwide, we had between two and three hundred professors. It was almost like a college itself. Because if you convince yourself that, oh, that guy wouldn't be open or she won't be receptive, then you're going to be probably writing off a lot of your fellow students too. Just don't do it. And and so I would say Brasilia, number one. We want people to know about God all over the world because his name will be great among the nations. There we are. Now, let's get into the other part. Where does that phrase come from? Well, I figured that Brian Craig and the others who discussed it, didn't, they didn't want me to preach from Lamentations 1, because that's one place it comes from. And I have been teaching from Lamentations recently. I took it as from Malachi, because it's in Malachi chapter one. So we're going to race through some principles in the book of Malachi. Yes, you do need your Old Testament. I'm not being hypocritical. You say, Douglas, you're not following in the Bible. Yes, I am. I printed out my scriptures right here. And so if you could follow in your Bible, that would be really good. Then I can go faster. The theme comes from Lamentations 1. In this time, God's people were a bit full of themselves instead of full of him. Instead of exalting the Lord among the nations, they caused God's name to be trivialized even to be blasphemed. Obviously, that was bad. Now, we don't want to follow in their path. And if we're not careful, history most certainly will repeat itself. It just does that in those cycles. And so I I want us to to take a page from the book of Malachi to ensure that we are magnifying the Lord's name, that we have a passion in our heart that God's name will be respected and exalted and, and given the right honor worldwide, among the nations, in all 194 nations plus territories, I don't care where you are, these are the estranged sons and daughters of God who desperately need the truth and they need someone to love them and they need to know God. Malachi is written in the period after the exile. What is that? You may remember the punishment for disobedience was exile. That is, a foreign nation invades you, takes you away from your country, destroys your world, destroys your temple, and that, was, that happened to the Babylonians in 605. The Persians allowed them to return in 539. How long is that? That Babylonians come first in 605, 539. This is B.C., okay? B.C., 539, the edict for them to return. They start coming back. That span is about 70 years. You know Jeremiah 29, 11? Uh, he says, God says, I know the plans I have for you for hope and a future. But to understand verse 11, you have to look at verse 10. And verse 10 says, hope in the future comes in 70 years. You don't have hope in the future except for what will happen after you're dead. It's for your grandchildren. But after 70 years, which is why you need to stay focused, I will bring Israel back. But that future, that, that thing you're looking forward to is 70 years down the road, which means virtually the entire audience will be dead by the time Jeremiah 29, 11 was fulfilled. So please don't take that out of context. That's that's not good either. He spoke of hope in the future, but they were actually waiting a long time. 50 years after Jeremiah's ministry closed is when they came back. And in the time of Malachi, in the 400s, they're still under a governor, Persian governor, as in show that sacrifice to him, see if he accepts it. They don't have a king, there's no son of David, there's no, no one on the throne, there's certainly no Messiah. They're not only under the Persians, but they're under the Persians for two centuries. It's not looking very hopeful at all. No Judean king, no Messiah. Every book of the Bible has a purpose. And to, to really appreciate a book in the Bible, you have to know why that book is in the Bible. And if I asked you why is Matthew written, you can't say because we needed something to contain the Sermon on the Mount and Matthew 28:19. That's not why Matthew was written. Why is Amos in the Bible? What's Deuteronomy all about? Why are the Psalms there? What's the point of Ecclesiastes? Why is Malachi in the scripture? If you know the answer, if you know the theme, if you know what it's about, then you can understand what God's trying to say. Otherwise, you're just just desperately searching for verses to pull out to prove your predetermined agenda, and that's not good. The prophet's concern, says one scholar, I think he's correct, Malachi's concern was to assure his people that God still loved them. This period was a discouraging time for people who had returned from Babylon with such high hopes. They built the temple. They waited and waited, but there was no glory. Instead, there was famine, poverty, oppression, unfaithfulness to marriage vows, unfaithfulness to covenant vows, moral and spiritual laxity, pride, indifference, permissiveness, permissiveness, and skepticism were rife. Malachi tried to rekindle fires in the hearts, fires of faith in the hearts of his discouraged people. See, the people had come back. The temple was rebuilt. The walls were rebuilt. The sacrifices were restored, but it wasn't enough because mere structure is not enough. They said our dreams should be fulfilled We've come back, we've been patient, we waited 70 years. We actually waited a lot more than 70 years. And we're still in the dumps spiritually. We're wandering. It's not a happy time. But according to Malachi, no degree of structure or strategy is ever sufficient if the heart's not right. If our heart's not in the right place, it doesn't matter how good your leadership plan is how great your plan for the autumn semester is, the heart's not in the right place. It's irrelevant. And Malachi's pretty gutsy. So do you get that? It's a, it, the kind of time it was for God's people in the era of Malachi was a critical time. And the principles that helped them to hang on and do well can help you and me. I've been through a lot of things since I became a Christian when I was 18 years old. And I'm more than three times that age now. I've been through a lot of stuff. The principles in Malachi are principles that have given me perspective in challenging years. And in case there's anyone here today who could use a lift or some encouragement, I hope maybe some of these principles can put fresh wind in your sails too. So let's look at 1-1. And we're going to be reading very selectively 1-1 of Prophecy The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Okay, Malachi. What's Malachi? It's not Malachi, by the way. He's not Italian. It's a Jewish name. (laughs) Well, Malachi means my messenger. Oh, so is it a messenger or is it a prophet? I don't know. Some say it's a man named Malachi. Malachi also means my angel. Some would say it's Elijah. There's a connection with John the Baptist, which we'll see in a moment. But the dominant view is that it's a prophet and it's a message. Someone delivered the message. And Israel is doubting God's love. She's doubting God's love. I'm not going to break it all down, as I said, just selectively. The enemy is triumphing. Life is rough. It's like the time of Habakkuk. What's going on? Uh, We're not experiencing triumph. And he assures them. Verse 5, you will see it with your own eyes and you will say, great is the Lord, even beyond borders of Israel, that concern that God's greatness will be known in all the world. But Israel doubts God's love. Israel is breaking covenant through giving cheap sacrifices, blemished sacrifices. Verse 6, a son honors his father, a slave honors his master. If I'm a father, where is the honor due to me? If I'm a master, where's the respect due to me, says the Lord Almighty. God's not being honored, which immediately, like a dagger in my heart, asks me, am I honoring God? It is you priests who show contempt for my name. And so Malachi will challenge all of us, but it's especially directed at the leaders in Israel because the whole nation's responsible, but the leadership is always doubly responsible. You priests show contempt. Verse 10, Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you says the Lord Almighty, I will accept no offering from your hands. That sounds a bit like Revelation 3. I'm about to spit you out. Just close the doors? What door? I thought it was like the door into the Holy of Holies, but that's not where they made sacrifices. There was another door between the open public court and the sanctuary. If you close that, then no one would be bringing the sacrifices, period. Whatever it is, God is clearly saying, no, no, a little religion is not necessarily better than no religion. If it's not going to be pure, don't play the game. You get no credit. You get no brownie points for just going to church. Your heart actually has to be in the right place. Otherwise, we're mocking God. We're trying to pull a fast one on the Lord Almighty, and that's not going to work. Empty ritual. Stop the sacrifice. Worship is unacceptable because the life was not there. And this reminds me of Jeremiah 7 or Jeremiah 26, where Jeremiah preaches in front of the door to the temple. As the churchgoers are streaming in, he tells them, it's worthless. Until you make changes in your lifestyle, don't think that you're going to get away with this. Malachi is very specific, as we should be specific. He names specific sins. Sins like taking advantage of aliens, sexual sins, dishonesty, divorce, the occult, and so forth. He laments the drastic effect of mixed marriages and divorce, which are so far from God's ideal. And of course this applies to us, even though it's two and a half millennia ago, because, come on, be honest, you and I are tempted to give God less than our best. Are you not? Is there a pulse that beats in your body? that you will admit with me, We are unclean. We want to be holy, but we fall desperately short. We need the message of Malachi, even if you're having a great day and a great weekend. We need this message. My name, verse 11, will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, pure incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations. God's glory will not be shared with others, God's renown, his repute, his name will be respected worldwide. How much do we care about how God is regarded around the world? Does it bug you? Does it get under your skin? When you hear people over here, people make comments. Or you catch the edge, an insinuation in your university classes. Or something at the coffee break in your workplace. When you see God being dishonored... Does your blood boil or do you just make a sleepy yawn and hope the subject changes? Malachi has passion. And you may not be able to travel to all the places I get to go where you hear or you see God's name being great among the nations, but the cool thing about the L.A. area is that the whole world comes to you. So I could just ask you, do you take advantage of these opportunities? People come to you. I mean, it's stunning. Uh, Friday, I was in Santa Monica for a few hours. I mean, it was, it's like the United Nations right there. And it's all over. Oh, yes. And that's one reason I love being in London for so many years. I mean, very soon after we planted the church in London, we had, we had almost 100 nations represented in our membership. And that's only when we are about two or 300 members. The world will come to you. It will. But these priests are burdened and the people are tired and they say, verse 13, what a burden. You sniff at it contemptuously and God says, no, you're the ones who burden me. Isaiah 43, 24. They accuse God of injustice. He accuses them of injustice. They accuse God, but he will turn the tables. And he continues in these verses following, explaining how their cheap sacrifices, putting their own selves first, dishonors God and drags down reputation of his name. And that in this next section, and this is chapter two, you know, they offered animal sacrifices. If you're trying to reconstruct uh, what it would be like in the temple courts, they bring in the animals. Okay, they brought them like by a special door. But when animals are there for any period of time, animals do certain things, as in the numbers one and two. So you not only have the flow of blood from the sacrifice and the smell of flesh sizzling but you've got excrement and in one of the most graphic verses in the whole Bible God says that's verse 3 I'm going to take the dung from your cattle and sheep and goats and I'm going to mash it in the face of the priests. that's what God thinks of their leadership I'm going to rub that in your face Doesn't mean we should do it. This is simply revealing how disgusting and seriously wrong this is. So, if you're going to rationalize a cheapo, false, inauthentic faith, you better remember how God takes it. And he gives them additional warnings. These priests, he says, true instruction. You should be instructing people in righteousness like Levi did, verse 6. Instead, you're not. Not at all. Verse 7 the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, he's the messenger of the Lord Almighty. He should be God's messenger, my messenger, Malachi, Malachi, my messenger. But he's not. And people seek instruction from his mouth. Now, I know technically, technically, we're not, we don't have priests today. But yes, we do act as priests. Priests bring God to the people and they represent the people to God. And if you know the Lord through Jesus Christ, you serve as a priest and bringing the world to God or bringing God to the world by offering spiritual sacrifices. 1 Peter 2 and the book of Hebrews explain it all. So you see, these verses do apply to us, absolutely. Do you take pleasure in teaching? I know I'm different. I, I just love to teach. Never thought I'd be a teacher, but I love to teach. I love it. Yesterday, so exciting. The highlight of yesterday, no question, I was able to spend three hours with a professor at UCLA who's an atheist. And this was not a public event, although his wife was present for most of the discussion. And she was a sharp cookie. Uh, To be able to share my faith with him. And he was full of questions. Willing to read, to study, to read books. He wants to know my ideas. He's positive. He's holding back. I'm hoping he'll make a positive decision in however years he has remaining, which probably is not very many, but it's a joy. And maybe you wouldn't sit down with your professor if your professor is four times your age. Maybe you would sit down. You've got to figure out your situation, but you should be sitting down with somebody. Come on, Christians thrive when we give it away, then God gives more to us. And when you don't give it away, something's not right. Be honest about what it is that's not right. And there may be many possible answers to that. But we should take pleasure in this. Instead of a pure faith, instead of a pure passion for God, instead of a a, a fiery commitment, Israel was unfaithful. And he explains further in this chapter how they broke covenant. And you can read that. It's sad and what they were doing. The shortcuts they're taking in family and in finance. And it's just not good. And, you know, sin distorts our perspective. Look at the end of 2, 2.17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, wearied him. How have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the eyes of the Lord. That's just like Isaiah 5, isn't it? Woe to you who put good for evil, evil for good. And you say, where is the God of justice? If that's not what modern churchianity does. You, you take people who are clearly not trying to live for God. You say, oh, they're good. They're going to make it. They're righteous. Or you say, where's the God of justice? It wouldn't be fair if God did this or God did that. Everyone should make it. We shouldn't judge. You know, we should, we should be popular. We should make it easy. A Bible light. Where's the God of justice? The God of the Bible. I don't like him very much. These accusations are made by outsiders, but even by insiders, when God's people become jaded and dull. Similar allegations are made today in the universities, on the street, at the dinner table, with families who don't know the scriptures. How do you respond, and what are your convictions? One really fun thing in North River, in Atlanta, the church I'm part of, uh, the leaders are very supportive. This year, we're getting the the church to read the Bible. What do you mean? Uh, Strongly encouraging the church to read the entire Bible this year we found that there are many members who've been Christians for a number of years who've never read the entire Bible. And that's the goal. And there's a huge number of people who are gonna cross that finish line very soon. That biblical focus, what do you expect? And not only should you expect yourself to be a man or woman of the book, you should expect those in your group. You should expect those leading you because there's one standard and the lips of the priest ought to preserve knowledge. Okay. And then we get into the last part, and this is the exciting thing. Look what God says. I will send my messenger, this is chapter 3, who will prepare the way before me. Now, by now, you know what that is in Hebrew, right? My messenger is what? Malachi. Malachi, my messenger. That's Hebrew for my messenger. I will send him who prepared the way before me, and then suddenly what will happen? Get this. The Lord you're seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? He'll be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites, the priest. He will refine them like gold and silver. Okay, you got to get this. This is big. This passage is referred to in the Gospels. This is the way Matthew, Mark, and Luke really kick off. For example, look at the the first two verses of Mark's Gospel. The sequence is this. God himself is going to do an intervention. He's gonna send his messenger and then God himself will come to the temple. Well, what does Jesus say? Who does Jesus say that messenger is? Who is this Elijah-type figure? Don't worry, Elijah's been gone for centuries. But there's going to be another prophet who prepares the way, a herald. He's going to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord, as in God. But before God comes to the planet, God's going to send a messenger who's going to smooth the way. Who is that messenger? It is John the Baptist. And John the Baptist describes himself as, and Jesus agrees, he's the one who's come to prepare the way for the Lord. He comes to prepare the way, and then God himself comes to the earth. It's just one of many passages that show that Jesus is divine, that God becomes flesh. And this is the Old Testament, not the New. It's exciting. The herald comes, followed by the king. There are more specifics about sin. There are many challenges from the Lord. There are two reactions among the people. Verse 13 to 15, some are still arrogant. They don't want to be humble. And others, verse 16 to 18, respond humbly. The faithful remnant are fired up about this plan. And then we conclude... 4-4. 4-4. surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. The day coming will set them on fire. This sounds exactly like the message of John the Baptist. Not a root or branch will be left to them, but for you who revere my name, my name, which will be great among the nations, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, You will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. You will trample wicked ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. So there's judgment, you see. Jubilant liberation for the righteous, utter destruction for the wicked. They'll be judged and destroyed and nothing will be left of them but ashes. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb, at Sinai, Mount Sinai. For all Israel, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before. This is the messenger. I'll send the Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. What will Elijah do? He will turn the hearts of the parents to the father, the hearts of the children to the parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So John's going to come smooth the way by helping people to be reconciled to each other. Who was it in the Old Testament who called Israel back to the law it was Elijah but it's also John the Baptist and this is made clear and explicit in the New Testament and again look at Mark 1 his point is that without reconciliation if we've got divisions among God's people without reconciliation you're not ready for the Lord to come in holiness it's like if you can't love your brother whom you can see you cannot love God whom you cannot see first John 4 you, don't kid yourself about this We need to work things out. Well, so how do we apply this? Well, we all go through uh, tough times. But never let yourself just go through the motions. The heart must be right. Exactly the same point Haggai makes. That's what I studied this morning in my quiet time, the book of Haggai. Same point. You can have your system in your temple, but without the heart in the right place, it's for naught. We all go through tough times, so expect them. And you may be going through tough times with your health. It might be your back pain like mine or my wife's stroke or my mother's dementia. (laughs) Sometimes the pain is more emotional. You're betrayed by someone. Or maybe the church is not so attractive right now. Uh, People sin, uh, error, uh, unrighteousness, politics. And this is hard for us to see in the church because we love our spiritual family so much. And it can cause agonizing in the soul. And these are tough times just as much as uh, having a bad back or breaking your, your head. <laughs> tough times for our brothers and sisters. I mean, I, I asked them, how are these guys doing in Egypt? Frightening, scary, people being killed in so much of the world. You just remember 1 Peter 5, 9. Many are going through challenging times, even this morning, and many are worshiping in secret and underground because they can't come out in the public, and here we are. Maybe we're sweating a little bit in this this school, but, but it's not like we're going to be hauled off and interrogated if they find us. Come on. We all have challenges, but don't be unsettled when trouble comes, when challenges come, when you lose your health, when someone dies. Draw near to the Lord. His name is powerful enough to take care of us. Hold to your convictions. Malachi gets the people to consider deep convictions from the scripture about God's justice, about sin, about righteousness, about holiness. And then we're to live lives according to those convictions. And that has to do with, with what we do with our lives, with our money, with our sacrifices. It's all in there. They long for the coming of the Lord. It's encouraging us there. See verse 5, 6, 4, 1, 2, the the end of chapter 4 encourages us to look for the coming of the Lord. But we need to be right with him when that happens. So we long for the coming of the Lord. Uh, It encourages us to value reconciliation. And that means that there's someone you need to speak to, who's got something against you, Matthew 5, or vice versa, Matthew 18, uh, take the initiative and do it. I've had to do this many times, I will continue. If you even suspect someone is not so happy with you, be preemptive, don't be a coward. Make an appointment, travel to meet that person, do what you need to do. I can't tell you how many times I've had to do that because I've just suspected something's not right. Don't be a coward hoping someone else will take care of it. You value reconciliation in the church at all times. Keep the church holy. Leaders in Malachi are the ones who are most challenged, but the principles apply to us all. And the final application is for us to be most concerned with the Lord's reputation, not our own, just as we preach not ourselves, but we preach Christ crucified and ourselves as your servants for his sake, 2 Corinthians 4, 5. It's his name that must be great among the nations. Let's pray now as we go into communion. Dear Lord, as you sent Elijah to prepare the way for you, turning our hearts to you through observance of your holy law for the purpose of justice and liberation and redemption, we ask you to prepare our hearts now for your presence. We know that you will not come, that your refining fire will be a burning fire of judgment if we're not prepared May we devote our entire lives to you. As we think of the death of Jesus Christ, as we consider what you have asked us to commemorate every week, please help us in this time of observation to be your people and to discern the body. May the bread and the wine, which represent the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, may they serve to turn our hearts to you and to instill obedience and to create reconciliation at every level. And we pray this, Lord, not for our glory. We pray it for your glory, that your name may be great among the nations. Amen.